0: Welcome to the heavenly banquet where the hungry are filled with good things. This week's lesson is Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground for out of it you were taken you are dust and to dust you shall return I want to invite you to hear this Genesis story with fresh ears, without the baggage the centuries have heaped upon it. Too much of that baggage seems to be in defense of Adam and his claim that the woman, and by extension the God who made her, are to be blamed for the transgression. But we see instead that he was there the whole time, a witness to the first theological conversation between the serpent and the woman, and an independent moral agent who discerned that the fruit was good and then he ate. But let's back off the question around who's to blame and who might have tricked whom. It doesn't even seem like the serpent lied. Let's drop the transgression for a moment and examine its consequences. Our forebearers did something they weren't supposed to do and they were expelled from the perfection of paradise and ushered into a new cruel world One of God's creation, but one very different from the very good garden. As a genre, this Genesis story serves as an ideology or origin story. It explains things like why snakes exist. I mean, they're a special kind of creepy and it's reasonable to wonder what God was thinking unleashing them into the world. It also explains why childbirth should be so painful and so dangerous. Certainly our Creator couldn't have intended for us to procreate with so much suffering and death. It also explains why farming is so difficult. Weeds will grow in the cement, but seeds sown in good soil need constant care and good fortune if they are to grow and bear fruit. Certainly our Creator intended for us to be in a less adversarial relationship with the earth, Certainly, our Creator could have designed the world as a perfectly self-sustaining ecosystem, right? Well, the Genesis story tells us that God intended for nature to provide for us abundantly and effortlessly, and that it's only from our intervention, by our own action, through our sinfulness, that it doesn't. And we know that God didn't intend for creation to take these forms because in Isaiah, in Revelation, We see images of paradise, of heaven, as a place where there is no more suffering and sorrow and death, and where vineyards left untended produce grapes, each bursting with gallons of wine. We're even told that the heavenly court is attended by serpents with arms and legs and wings. I honestly don't like to think about them too much. They seem much creepier than the fallen serpents we have here. but. God seems to just love them. The point being that God's plan for salvation includes the restoration of the garden, a return to Eden, the perfection of creation that involves the removal or reversal of those first curses. What I want to bring to your attention today, though, are a few of the curses that we tend not to understand as curses, even though they're located in the midst of those other curses and even though they're conditions that are specifically promised to be upended through the work of Christ. We too often think of these things as just the way things are, even though our scripture describes them as constructs of a world marred by sin. One of these things is basically the creation of the patriarchy, the subordination of the woman to the man. The garden was an egalitarian paradise, a place where there was nothing to do but love God and love one another. There was no hierarchy in that first community. Even the idea of Eve as helpmate doesn't paint her as some assistant or servant of the man. Helpmate describes a partnership, and there was one task before them, to mature in the love of God, and that moves us toward the second curse, the very creation of gender norms. It's in this set of curses that we find the woman confined to childbirth and child rearing and the man tasked with toiling the earth with working to provide for his household. That's a curse. Those divisions did not exist in paradise. Those are trappings of a world marred by sin. I mean it's right there in the text that gender norms, that the patriarchy or curses are the result of and the expression of sin and are not God's original intention for creation. And those things are certainly evil. Those are the things that describe men as weak should they seek mental or emotional care. Those are the things that restrict men into believing that they have to shoulder sole responsibility for their families. Those are the things that coerce men with the lie that violence is power, is a hallmark of masculinity. Those are the things that whisper to fathers that tending to their own children isn't some manly pursuit. I'm not gonna waste your time listing all the ways that the patriarchy and gender norms have historically and are currently hurting women. No one has time for that. I think it's important, though, to note how those things hurt men too, how the patriarchy is good for no one. Those impossible and burdensome expectations separate men from one another, from women and from their own kids, and whatever is separating us from one another separates us from God. And the greatest proof that these things are not part of God's created order is the work of Christ to subvert and overturn these hierarchies and constructs. That's what Jesus is doing when he calls fishermen from their boats and into the new work of kingdom building. That's what Jesus is doing when he welcomes women as disciples, women who are entrepreneurs, women who maintain their own households, women who are widowed, women whose value is determined by their contributions to this new movement rather than their ability to procreate. That's what Jesus was doing when he dismisses questions about marriage in heaven and when he refuses to participate in a stoning. That's what Jesus is doing when he chooses, when he chooses Mary Magdalene as the first witness to the resurrection and the first preacher of Easter. Jesus declares that he's reordering Satan's household, and that means reversing these curses, abandoning hierarchies and constructs that separate us, and embracing an egalitarian vision of the kingdom, a kingdom in which we are then each free to love one another to care for one another, and with that nurture and in that partnership to self-actualize more fully into the image of the God who created us—an egalitarian vision of the Kingdom in which we can truly live out the commandments to love God and to love neighbor, as we were intended to do in Paradise. If any of this sounds new or strange to you, let me also mention that it didn't seem new or strange to Paul. This is the same pattern that he observes when he declares in Galatians that there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That's an egalitarian kingdom where these gender norms and hierarchies no longer exist. That's the mark of our baptism, that we have become citizens of that kingdom, one where there's no such thing as male or female. And Paul did actually put some of that into practice. We focus too much on the household codes and that one time he told Timothy not to let women teach. We grab onto that without even knowing what was going on in Timothy's situation. But Paul, Paul charged Phoebe with distributing and teaching his letter to the Romans. Paul gave a woman, a woman he described as a deacon, the task of sharing and interpreting his most important theological work. She's not in the nursery. She's not in the kitchen. She's at the front of the assembly. That's radical. That's the revelation of the kingdom of God, and it's a kingdom that's revealed whenever we strive for equality by destroying the hierarchies and constructs that divide us. We often talk about being on the right side of history, but we Christians should probably talk more about whether we're on the right side of the curse, whether we might be advocating for the curse and propping up Satan's code rather than Jesus's. That's no place to be. The patriarchy, gender norms, including transphobia and homophobia, anguish around reproductive health, inequality in the workplace and in the home, All of this mess around, I can't even say the word, all of this mess around complementarianism. Anything outside of ourselves that seeks to divide or define us, that's all the curse. That's not God's intention. Those are bounds Jesus seeks to break and bounds he's invited us to break with him. And every act for justice, every small word or large movement that opposes those curses is a blessing. Anything that opposes the curse is a blessing. Anything that opposes the patriarchy is a blessing. May you be blessed and be a blessing. Let's bless this mess until kingdom come.